La 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 John says world La 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 John says podcast sucks La 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 John says world La 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 Red pebbles are cool La 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 John says world can you hear me? Oh, I can hear you. I'm yeah. waiting for you, yeah? <laughs> okay, good. Right. Just making sure. Oh, yeah. Levels are good. Hey, everybody. This is John Seth, and you're listening to John Seth's World. I have no co-hosts today. I've killed them both. Uh, and instead, I'm going to do a little... You know, in light of uh, Tommy Robinson today, I, I thought what we could do is bring on a proper English woman... And uh, and have her describe some things to us a little bit about like maybe rules in the UK for us stupid Americans who don't know anything. And uh, in addition, uh, since I have her on, Isabella Kaminska, I'm going to talk about a bunch of other things that I find interesting that maybe you'll find boring, but I don't care because it's my show. <laughs> Welcome, Isabella. Hi, nice to be with, uh, nice to be there with you. Yeah, it's been in a long virtual. time actually. I haven't I haven't spoken to you formally since we did our little podcast in London last time I was there. I don't know what was that twelve years ago. Twelve years ago, <laughs> like it was. Well, I, had, I had a baby in the interim, so you did. Yeah, it was a while ago. <laughs> yeah, and we, well, I'm talking crypto time. I mean, we, I was there. We were literally basic, basically the week that the ICO craze started. Yeah, yeah, I remember that, and it was it was summer because I remember it was warm, <laughs> and um, and yeah, it was literally just before the whole thing went mainstream, and people were wondering what the hell are these things, and I'd just done like um, a big story about what they were and how speculative they were, and I think we were we were laughing at a couple of the more creative ones and you were you had a good spin on it and I've, I've forgotten now what it was i don't remember something either to do with <laughs> something like it, it was the equivalent of creating fusion maybe oh the the, I the time I, I had a time, time machine. machine you were saying yeah refrigerator box time machines i think yeah yeah that that's kind of like the equivalent of what they were promising yeah, it, it, yeah, I mean, it, what's funny is that now that the ICO craze is done and gone, not to say it won't come back, but like it seems to me that it's pretty clear that that thing was stupid. There, I don't know what came out of it. Well, what came out of it were stable coins, and now there's this new phenomenon that Jemima Kelly, my new colleague on Alphaville, um, is writing about. I believe they're called exchange tokens or... ETOs, exchange token offerings, ETOs, I think. Yeah. Which are just ICOs, but for exchanges. Well, it just sounds like they've tried to just change the name, do a bit of magic to kind of make them less obvious to the SEC. And uh, perhaps, you know, if they're launched on some sort of exchange, they they seem to think that this diminishes some of the uh, Howey tech issues. Um, I'm not yet convinced that this is a foolproof defense. I would guarantee it's, but I think that you, I mean, stable coins precede ICOs. They do. They do. You're right. You're right. But there are like, you know, stable coin ICOs now. And are there? there are, I know that, well, I don't know that, uh, what was it? Mass, ma, the 
God damn it! What, what the, there's there's the Ethereum one that's uh, that buys and sells itself. What's it called? Yeah, I, I don't know that one, but I'm just th- I'm thinking of like Libra. Oh no, there's <laughs> Libra. It's kind of like <laughs> an ICO. <laughs> Is it an ICO? Kind of, kind of. Not, not open to everybody, of course. Just a few select uh, privileged bodies, but um, you know, for the lucky. Uh, lucky few, they get to invest in early and and have huge exposure on the upside in the long run. What is the upside on a stablecoin, though? Um, I think it's in in the Libra case. It will be uh, fees. Are they holding sort or interest? They get they're getting on the arbitrage between the the people give them deposits and they put those deposits in the in safe assets, which are interest uh, generating, and they 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 pocket the interest. Are they holding treasuries, or are they going to hold like actual dollar bills, or what are they? They haven't announced it yet, but they they claim it will be safe assets. It'll be the basket of X, you know, key currencies, and you obviously when you when you hold a basket of currencies, you don't net, you don't physically hold a basket of currencies, you have to invest it in some sort of asset money like instrument. And so that's a, either a government bond or some, some sort of short, short-term uh, bill. Um, and they will be interest yielding. Although will they is the question because famously safe assets are very low yielding in the euro, in the eurozone, then they're, they're negative yielding. So um, they're planning on making like this money from the interest, but if this, I this is one of my issues with the whole thing is that if they if they're safe, then the the interest will be zero unless economic the economic environment changes massively. Right. Um, and if they want interest, they have to go down the risk curve. In which case, they introduce risk. It's really hard to have your cake and eat it. I don't think they've really fought it through very well. Well, I think economically, it's impossible to have your cake and eat it. If if the interest if if it is high returns, then that means that there is some specific risk. And the question is whether you're being compensated for the risk or not being compensated for it, right? Exactly. You know, that, absolutely. There's always there's always a trade-off. And risk, if, if you want high returns, you need risk. You need to take risk. If you want if you want no risk, you probably don't have any return at the moment. No, nobody really wants risk in the real kind of investment world. Well, no, it's changed a little bit, but by and large, in this world of like payments and uh, regulated sort of entities that offer payments, you, you're not allowed to really take too much risk, um, or you shouldn't be. Um, in in that case, in in that world, it's very hard, very hard to find something interesting. Interest uh, bearing. So, I mean, two things. Do you, do you think this thing actually gets off the the ground? I don't know. I mean, it's all very weird. It's like um, they've they've issued this kind of white paper. Well, no, they didn't issue. They they issued lots of white paper, <laughs> and uh, they they were co-authored by like a gazillion people. It's like the world's. Like, can you imagine? I'd be very shocked that there was actually any consensus in the writing of those white papers. Um, Ironic, really. Um, And it's just a conceptual project at this moment. It's, It's sort of like a threat. It's more like, hey international regulators were threatening to do because we're really powerful right but it, it seemed really kind of tone deaf to the to, to the kind of general 
perception in the world of Facebook at the moment. It's, it, it's like the most, I, I mean, I don't mean to be disparaging about autistic people, but it seems like an autistic kind of move. It's like the world hates you. The world thinks you're like completely creepy. There's antitrust issues facing you. What are you going to do? Oh, you're, this is the time to announce like your evil plan to take over the world financial system. Do you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I like, I've been trying, so, so I've been working on a couple stand-up jokes. I'm trying to do a stand-up, so I got one, it's, uh, what do you call a thousand autistic uh, men and women standing in a room? I don't know. Facebook. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <Just kidding>. Yeah. <laughs> but no, the, uh, I, I don't think that's wrong, and I do think it is tone deaf, and I am completely confused as to where they think they're going to make their money. Which I think is why they've somehow split it into a second company, fundraised for it separately. I've heard a number of people theorize that they're just trying to basically take advantage of the network growth. They don't want to get left behind, and they view Bitcoin as a threat just because it's a different network than Facebook, which I thought was actually kind of an interesting theory, considering their acquisition of fair. a number of I networks like that. I think that's not fair. I mean, they're aging. Let's not forget, Facebook is aging really quickly. Nobody young uses Facebook. Everyone, there was a really interesting story today, actually, about how um, the Hong Kong protests are effective because, by and large, most of that generation that is behind those protests does not use Facebook. And it was like an analysis of how, like, the Occupy movement, which was generally kind of uh, implemented through things like Facebook, it failed because of the, the, the format of Facebook was really bad at creating consensus because it kind of because it's so focused on engagement, mm. the argument was, it actually creates um, a hostile environment where people just argue with each other. And I've certainly seen that in my own experience on Facebook. It's like because you're kind of exposed to all your friends and from all you know, from random people from all over the world and there's this competition to be super popular, you end up kind of like upsetting people and it's hard to have a debate on, on Facebook. So so these Occupy movements, they kind of died because of, they tried to organize through Facebook. They were good at catalyzing things, but then things went nowhere. Whereas with the Hong Kong stuff, those guys are just not on Facebook. Instead, they've actually created, they kind of organically started these things, things more like Snapchat and Instagram. And then to organize, they've created a, a sort of bespoke platform, which is more Reddit-like, which means people who are interested in the protests all come together. And it's constructive, and it's more that, like, the, the good plan rises to the top, and then people follow it. And there isn't the same, like... There's more of a competition of ideas on the on this network, and that has been far more constructive in terms of of organizing people than the Facebook stuff. So I think in that context, Facebook is um, it doesn't have that sort of social change aspect to it anymore. It's failing in terms of like uh, who it's you know engaging. Like it's the older generation. It's not cool with the young people. And, of course, the big market, the developing world, um, there's all sorts of kind of weird political concerns and, and, and how they're going about accessing those people is, is very kind of politically uh, contentious in some areas. So I think, you know, they are struggling and they need a new thing. And so they've come up. So I think the network, like, panic idea is, is a really good and fair one. I've noticed different things, like behavior-wise, uh, on Facebook with my friends. I I'm sure you have as well. One of which uh, is the sort of timidity that I see people posting with now. 
it used to be that people would post, you know, whatever they were thinking on Facebook, no biggie. Yeah. And now I see this fear that a lot of people have as they post, trying to make sure they, they don't even care if they get a lot of engagement. They just care that they don't piss people off. Yeah, yeah. It's a kind of like you're, you're self-censoring because you're now kind of in this. Yeah, I, 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 I experienced it with myself because you kind of. Because you want to keep your job. Facebook, yeah, and I think before <laughs> Facebook, there was this naive. I mean, this is my personal experience. It might not be somebody else's, but I felt that there was this naive like expectation that people would, my friends, who by and large I thought were my friends, but then you don't really realize how when you're face-to-face, um, you don't, you naturally kind of steer away from controversial things or you agree with people because it's just polite to do so, but you don't really agree with them, right? But on Facebook, that kind of illusion is shattered because you felt like really um, you had this platform and you could challenge people, and you could put out your real views and you would do that. And then soon, like you found that all these people that you fought for one way, they'd come back and attack you and you'd be like, oh my God, this friend that I knew is actually an idiot and blah, 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 blah. And, and it, it, it actually created frictions in your social group. So I think my strategy was, well, you know what? I think Facebook is bad. I'm not going to engage in those conversations with friends. And there's a reason why the English decided to just talk about the weather um, (laughs) because it's the only safe, (laughs) neutral ground sometimes. Maybe not, though. Um, Not even the weather. Not now. No. Because of the... Oh, my gosh. Speaking of which, sorry. um, If you can hear a baby screaming in the background, it's because... That's my daughter. But she is in the capable hands of her dad. It's just that she's having a night terror. Oh, no. Oh, poor Sorry. little girl. But, yeah. But you know, she, shut up. <laughs> I, I, do think it's, I do think it's interesting. There's a, a different sort of a way we discuss things in, in America as opposed to the U.K. I think, I think that in the U.K. you guys have a very strong sense of civility. Yes. And, well, we, we, we used to. We, <laughs> we're supposed to. I mean, we were supposed to have a code of conduct, like this is unconscious code of conduct, and pr- there's a protocol on how you on how you discuss things, and um, you know that means like generally speaking, you know, on, on in public spaces like the tube, you just don't engage with strangers at all. It's very weird the way Americans come and start talking to people. Um, <laughs> you just don't do that in the UK. Um, you don't talk to people in lifts or elevators as you call them um and then if you do have to like sit in an awkward position with a stranger you you stick to like two topics one is the weather and the other is presumably something about the royal family or something very non-contentious so um that is kind of the rule that those are the rules of engagement um very different i'm polish my parents are polish this is very different to poles will just tell you what they think um and I guess Americans are, are, are also the sort who will... I mean, it, it struck me the other day I was in France and you just sit down and couple, an American couple right next to us, we're talking about, like, you know, building work or whatever, and, and the guy's like, oh, so you're you're planning a new... A, uh, whatever, a new extension, blah, blah, blah. He's like, yeah, okay. Yes, the English would find that very intrusive. <laughs> but we, you know... Well, we, I, we call it eavesdropping, but we just do it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know, I mean... Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that American conversation is a lot more like Irish boxing, maybe. It's kind of like backyard brawling. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. 
Yeah, and I, I don't mind that. I, I, I do think, for me at least, I've, I've said this a number of times, and I, I think it's, for me, it's been an important point. I do think that, like, civility is sort of a tactic, a social, like, it's, it's, a, it's more of a discussion tactic than it is, like, a necessity for me. And uh, I don't know how many people agree with that here, but, like, I, I tend to, I tend to dis- dislike the notion that civility is the number one concern in conversations. Interesting. What, so you, you think it's a tactic? Yeah. I think that it's, I think that civility itself, because you can, I find that my personal theory is that it, like the really, you know, stiff upper lip British thing comes from our legacy as an extremely liberal and open, uh, kind of economy. And we were very permissive of all sorts of things. And this created a culture that actually ended up, uh, you know, having a backlash with the Victorian era and the Victorians took things completely the other way. And it's very, it's reminds me of what's going on today in the culture wars is like, on one hand, you had this extremely liberal, the internet, let everything explode. Everyone was saying what they thought, blah, blah, blah. And the backlash to that now is like, Oh my God, everyone's offended. Mm -hmm. And repression of all that is now the it's very victorian this has happened before it's yeah it's the victorian kind of mentality and the british stiff upper lip thing definitely comes from that era but i would say civility i mean like if you look at the history of civility civility really is sort of a way for uh the upper crust to have a manner in which to speak that allows them to know who is not someone who belongs yeah yeah there's a code there's a code for sure and and a, a protocol and a code and so you can you know so, so the po- polls have like my mum used to always say you know she'd always be very mistrusting of the british and the english because she'd be convinced that she didn't understand all the kind of civil codes and that they the british would be very two-faced they'd be very nice to you uh when they meet you but then behind your back they'd be like oh, oh, oh. So that was the kind of perception of the British character from the Pol- Polish perspective, whereas the Poles are just like, they tell you to your face what they really think. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, the reason, the only reason I bring it up is because one of my big complaints in these culture wars, uh, as it were, is this sort of idea. Look, I, I hear a lot of the people on the conservative side of the culture war saying, well, you know, uh, I don't agree. Um, I, think that, I think that speech, you know, freedom of speech matters, but civility that's what we need. We need to be civil. And I hear that and I think to myself, man, that is that is the wrong attitude in this stuff, I think. And I, I don't know, like, I, I do hear a lot of the people like Sargon of Akkad um, and others in the culture wars, and I find it very interesting how, particularly the English, on the English side of the culture war, there is such a notion of civility. And I, I don't mind it. I think it's, I think it's interesting. But I, I do think that, like, it is a tactic. British. It's the whole idea of, like, you can stab someone in the back, but as long as you're civil about it, it's okay. <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> Thank you, <I> sir. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. It, it's the sort of my Monty Python thing. It, um, <laughs> the British, you know, they, they'd get very upset about, you know, somebody using the wrong teacup, but not, but you can be quite brutal and you can murder someone in front of them, but as long as you did the right, you know, correct etiquette and how you murdered them that's fine right <laughs> so, um uh yeah no I, I i i i think that's fair um yeah i mean it's there's those notorious scenes of like the british in india kind of like sitting there t- sipping tea whilst like huge amounts of like horrific genocide or whatever was going on um 
yeah, I think there's there's definitely something to it. <laughs> but I don't know. The, the do you find that the Americans are, are just not as concerned with civility then? I think that civility is a way to tell people to shut up. I, I think it's I I. Uh, I prefer people who are not concerned with civility. I like I see like someone like Christopher Hitchens, right? Mm-hmm. And I think one of the main criticisms of him is that he was uh is that he was a dick. Right? That's that's <laughs> a, but I have this I, I have this phrase that I often use, which is that uh you evaluate arguments and not people. Yes. And and I think that people have an inability to do that. And those who are pre are are over-concerned with civility, seem unable to evaluate arguments uh, over people. And what debates, particularly when debates begin, oftentimes they will devolve into debates about how an argument was presented rather than what argument was presented. And I, you know, that's when we get into this like notion of like the semantic argument, right? Like, oh, this is just a semantic argument. And my idea, you know, when I talk about arguments generally, it's like, well, the semantic argument is necessary. It's the first stage of the argument. If you can't get past that, then you literally don't have anything. You don't have an argument. I think I think you're right, but I think in the, in the case of the British, I mean, the the whole concept of debating. Like, so I recently did a disastrous, absolutely disastrous debate. You know, these uh, Oxbridge debates, um, and they're like a sport, and there's a code of conduct, there's a very specific protocol. And I think we were, what were we arguing about? Something to do with the financial crisis, and that we have or haven't learned the lessons of it. And I was on the uh, side arguing that the lessons of the financial crisis have not been learned. And um, anyway, I did terribly. But in part, <laughs> that's because I don't know. I haven't been trained in that, that school of oratory. I haven't. It's a very specific school. There is a protocol. There is a methodology. And the people who come from Oxbridge, they and you're right, the substance of the argument isn't necessarily as critical as to the way they produce and present the, the, you know, it's the articulation, it's the, it's the methodology, it's the drama, it's, you know, Jacob Rees-Mogg is very good at that sort of um, presentation. Um, it's, it, it is very interesting. And, and, and of course we, my, my, my boss has always said that Americans are generally much better at debating because you, you kind of are taught at school to perform from a very early age. You're always, presenting and you're always taught to be very kind of flamboyant and outgoing whereas in the UK everyone's kind of repressed and it's, it pays to be humble and you don't have so we're terrible at performing we're I think it's part of it I also think that you guys yeah. are lacking the chess pieces right because like in America we don't care about your feelings when you know debating you <laughs> you just care right, about being right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah that's fair but anyhow but you re- see, I was having I was having a debate on Alphaville with uh certain colleagues about the whole freedom of speech thing and whether or not and no platforming and um i guess one of the one of the contentions so, so i was arguing in favor of, of free speech at any cost and there was the counter view was that there are some ideas that are too dangerous to kind of propagate um and they don't benefit from nobody benefits from their propagation and the and the theory behind that was that this is because um, if you're if the person you're arguing against has an inability to recognize uh, the non-logical aspect of his own argument, you can't win against him. So why bother? Oh my gosh! Sorry, <laughs> you're fine. 
I mean, uh, that's actually where I was going to go is the speech issue because, like, I mean, that that's that's a dumb. I think that's a dumb position because uh-huh. I, I, look, I think here, here's my position, and this is a it's it's a highly religious position. All right, speech is the way that we work out ideas, and one of the most important things that we have to allow in society is uh, redemption, and it's a very Christian idea. This like idea of the you know being able to be redeemed. And I think that if you do not allow any idea to be discussed, you basically remove society's ability to redeem people. Oh, yeah. And I'm, I'm with you. And I think it also presumes that some people are beyond, they have no agency. They don't have the capacity to make um, decisions for themselves. And well, that may or may not be true, but I don't think it's up to us. It's if, if the people lack the education to be able re- to recognize when logic is not being like an argument isn't being made logical right. in a lot of way. It isn't that doesn't necessarily mean we shouldn't stop trying to be. Um, maybe it's the way we're explaining it. There has to be, you know, fundamentally, I, I do believe that every single person alive has an innate understanding of logic because if they didn't, they'd be run over by buses or whatever every day. Like intrinsically, <laughs> we have to have some logic in us because otherwise you couldn't function in the world. Right. So it's just a question of how you package that argument. So debating really is about understanding your audience and putting it in terms that they can understand. And so I don't think it's fair to say that um, there's no point in arguing someone who hasn't got the capacity to understand what you're saying, um, because that just means you're not doing a good job in explaining your point, right? And, and, and by the way, I think I misspoke. I don't think that society's job is to redeem people. I think society's job is to allow people to to work on redeeming themselves like work yeah. on getting redeemed but i don't think society has any ability to force people into the redemptive frame right and yeah i, I think you're right i think that that's the case i mean like you know for well, me yeah for me the, i mean redemption is a, is a tricky one because like how do you know if you need to be redeemed you, you have don't to have recognition of yeah, exactly. You thought you don't. The beauty of Christianity, yeah. in my view, is that it wraps a lot of this up into these spiritual words. But you can secularize all of it. So, like, I, for example, how do you know you need to be redeemed? Well, in Christianity, you'd say, well, the, the Holy Spirit does a work on you. It, it like, it, it tinges you. It, it lets you know that you have areas of your life that need, you know, fixing. And, uh, and you know, the idea is that belief in Jesus somehow removes these, like, goggles and uh, reveals to you this world and uh, gives you an understanding of the areas in which you, you know, you need uh, his work in your life, right? And I think that there is a mm-hmm. secular version of I think the problem is that there is no secular language for this. No, you're right. I, I, think, I think that's very true. I mean, that's just generally I feel um, there's a lot of stuff that religion inadvertently has gotten rights through the year, through the ages, whatever. It has some really amazing insight. And whether or not it was a coincidence or not is kind of irrelevant. Um, so that insight needs to be the bits of it that are kind of worthwhile should not be poo-pooed. And I think there's such a tendency to poo-poo these things just because they're archaic and, you know, silly <laughs> old man with a big beard. But the, there is a core truth to a lot of these things that is emerging now. It's like even, I mean, I don't want to, this is going off topic, but it, it struck me like how in this day and I'll br- age, I'll bring us back by the way. I, I'm okay with this. This is exactly where I wanted to go. 
Yeah, no, I was just going to say in this day and age of like technology and, and you're online all the time, you suddenly kind of really understand why there was a day of rest, right? Yeah. It's like a, a moratorium on like nobody uses technology for a whole day or any <laughs> kind of work. You've got to rest. Or your donkey. Blah, blah, blah. So one of the things, I mean, like for Americans, the freedom, the, the idea of the freedom of speech is at least it's been this way. It seems to be that there's a debate about this now. Um, but freedom of speech has always been this sort of notionally a God-given right. Right. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and and I think it's for the reasons I articulated. I think it is, in fact, because without freedom of speech, you have no ability to have social redemption. And you have this strange sort of phenomenon now where, like, we've removed a lot of the religion from society. And it seems in some ways that we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater. On the other side of the pond, you guys don't even have freedom of speech per se, right? Yeah, so I, I keep trying to tell people in America that it's very different here because we have limitations to our speech, and we and some of them are newer than other than other parts of it. But by and large, libel law has existed for a very long time. The concept of slander has been around for yonks, and um, and then on top of this, all that we have real reporting restrictions when it comes to. Um, coverage of any criminal court case and that's been around since the 80s so these are the, these limitations have been around for a very long time um, and now we obviously have hate speech regulations as well which have um, impacted uh, speech even more um, I think hate speech to me like bringing it back to your point about civility that's kind of like a a, uh, a, a a modern day incarnation of what used to be perceived as the sort of gentleman's code, right? That you can't uh, offend people to their face. Like you, you, you can do all sorts of things, but you can't be offensive. Um, so, and I think it's very British in some ways, but, um, but because Americans are used to the idea of, Free, free speech, but even in America, you know, at the end of the day, you can get sued for libel in America as well. So it's different there here, are though. limitations. It's, near, um, it's nearly it's impossible hard. to get sued for libel here. It's really hard to do libel. It is much harder. Absolutely, I do agree. It's harder, but it's not impossible. There are there are cases. So, um, uh, but in the UK, for sure, libel is a big thing, and um, in France, it's even worse. In France, you can be um, sued for libel for much more spurious reasons as well. So I think there are there are key tests. So when you become a journalist in the UK, one of the first things you do is you do libel training, and you you spend a good chunk of your time on courses explaining to you how how it works. And the fir first thing they tell you is that libel is all about protecting somebody's reputation. And so, and how do you test that? You test that with, with respect to whether they can conduct their job after uh, the libel has happened. So if, the, if, if what you do uh, upsets the reputation of somebody to the point that they cannot, cannot do their job anymore, that is a definite case of um, them being libeled um, and they would have a case against you. So when you write stories you have to be very careful and and you can work there are ways around it and you can be vague about who you're talking about and you know there are defenses that you can be defend like comment and opinion gives you a little bit more defense uh, but you still have to be um you know everything has to be uh conducted under sort of 
the the assumption of fair comment right. um and and then you have um you have exemptions in so much as there's uh, there's qualified privilege and absolute privilege so if you are reporting on anything happening in parliament well anything that happens in parliament can be reported without any restriction whatsoever even if it's libelous right so if, if and um or in contempt of court, right? So, so if, if a, so, very often what happens is, I don't know if you have these in the U.S., but here we have something called a super injunction, and a super injunction is when a, so say you're a footballer and you just had an affair with someone, and you you just get called by a reporter's wanting comment, because uh, by you know part of the whole journalistic ethics thing is we obviously have always approach someone for comment. So the person you're writing a story about will know that there's a story coming up about you. So within seconds, before they, there is some time lag between the time they've called you and asked comment and, and the time they're writing the story. They will get their lawyers and go for an emergency injunction to the court to compel you, the reporter, to not print that, right? And there is something called a super injunction because they became... Um, it became evident that just the even though we couldn't report the details, we could still report that there was an injunction against us about reporting something. And now a super injunction means that we can't even report that there that we are the subjects of an injunction, right? So it's complete gagging of press. Oh wow! Um, so you can't even say that you've been subject to an injunction about something. Now, funnily enough, um, but the internet obviously all these rules apply to individuals as well, but the internet, just because it's prolific, it's very hard to persecute, uh, not persecute, but, but uh, go after lots of like people. And I mean, it's just, it's an expense thing. The court isn't going to go after you if it's at large scale. So this propagates on the internet. Um, and it's only established media that, that kind of toes the line. But what will happen very often is that like some rogue MP will just announce in Parliament that X has had an affair with blah de blah as part of his as part of his daily whatever they they all have like an opportunity to speak and stuff. This happened last and year, then, right, with the Me Too stuff? Because of that absolute privilege, we can then report about it. It's like this weird loophole. So I think that happened recently with that was the Me Too. Why, but it might have been with Philip Green or someone. Yeah. Um and so it became it, it was publicized because some MP said, well, the subject of the injunction is X. And then we were all free to write about it. So one of the reasons the big reason I thought it would be interesting to have you on today in particular is because for those who don't know who Tommy Robinson is, Tommy Robinson is a controversial UK figure who uh, in particular reports uh, or whatever you want to call it. But I would say reports on. Uh, the sort of phenomenon of um, of particularly Muslim rape gangs, much to the chagrin right. of uh, quite a number of politicians in the state, and uh, I think I think the state has done its best to try to keep it quiet that, that these things occasionally happen. And t- he was he was uh, arrested about f- I don't know what it was fourteen months ago or something like that on the steps of the courthouse for violating uh, an order. Is, is what they claimed, and he was basically thrown into jail on a contempt of court order for reporting this thing. So I was talking to you today a little bit about this, and I think that a lot of people that listen to the show and generally Americans who care about, uh, probably conservative Americans, 
um, on the whole, really care a lot about this issue in particular. And I thought it would be interesting to have you on, talk a little bit about uh, the restrictions on reporting on court stuff, just because a lot of them I, I didn't know. And it, it changes the narrative a little bit, knowing that those things are how all of England works. I think it's, a, I think it's shite, but I, <laughs> I, that's my opinion. I, I have a very different of, uh, opinion of freedom of speech than I think uh, any, any or most UKers do. But, uh, but yeah, you know, I thought it would be interesting at least to kind of get that perspective on exactly what happened so that we can at least, you know, understand what's going on there in context. Yeah, I mean, certainly you can, you know, we all have a right to think whether it's shite or not shite. Um, but th those court reporting restrictions have been around since at least the 80s. And their intention is to sort of preserve the sanctity of the courtroom and, and to keep it sort of neutral and um, not contaminated by external evidence, right? Because the, the, the reasoning is, is that if you do not have a fair trial, because the jury, especially the jury, it has in some way in a criminal case been uh, sort of persuaded to think X or Y because of a campaign by the press or whatever, um, then it's not a fair trial. It's all about fundamentally that the, the you know that you're innocent until proven guilty, and the court needs to preserve uh, that situation. And also, there's also the fact that you know I'm not a lawyer. I have to disclose I'm not a lawyer, so <laughs> but this is my understanding just based on dealing with with this on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, it's when you are tried for a criminal offence, it's very specific to that offence. So any other previous stuff that has happened is not relevant to this case. And, it, and, and, and there, is, there are very strict rules on what is and what isn't relevant. And so very often, um, you know, there was a famous case here uh, by related to the murder of two young girls by a guy called um, Ian Huntley. It was a very big, big case. And what everyone knew who had done any research um, was that Ian Huntley had a previous record for uh, all sorts of dodgy, like, paedophilia stuff. And um, yet we could not report when, when this was happening, when he was in, in court for, the, for this murder, because that was perceived as, um, as in some way, uh, biasing, prejudicing the case. Now, that information was probably in the public domain, but it doesn't matter that it's in the public domain. The fact is that public domain is a weird state. It's like in a, in a liable case, just because something is publicly available doesn't necessarily mean it's been, it's, it, 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 it's an issue. It has to be widely distributed and widely known. So if something's in the public domain, but most people are unaware of it, then you spreading that public domain information is still an act of contempt, if that makes sense. So in that case, it was only after he became, when, when he was uh, found guilty, that the press could finally report all the previous stuff and all the connections he had to pedophilia. Um, but there is another factor, which is that if, so it's not the case that you cannot report at all in a criminal case. You can report, but you're, it's very particular, to not be found in contempt, it has to be seen as fair and accurate reporting. And one of the conditions is that, like, for example, you, once a criminal case begins, you can't just hop in and out of it. You have to kind of have a continuity. You have to start, you're starting reporting on something. You have to be there until the end of the case. You have an obligation to carry it through. 
Um, so there, there are really big restrictions, which is why if you're working at a newspaper and you, you have to cover a criminal case, very often, you know, you speak to the lawyer and they're like, oh, you know, wait, maybe wait until the verdict comes out until, until you report on it, because it's often not worth the risk. And the risk is huge because the risk is a personal liability by the reporter. It's not the company you're working for that bears the risk. It's the reporter who is, in the event that they do um, get found in contempt, they can go to jail. Right? So if you begin, is it basically the day you start reporting on it, thereafter you have to report on it? Um, so once, so if you're reporting on a case, once it goes to trial, you can report on it, but you have to report on it in a fair and very neutral way. So you can't sort of add opinion and you can't sort of editorialize. You have to be very, it's, it, the court reports are extremely boring. They are just a count by count basis of what happens in court. You cannot add anything. You, you, you know, every, every report ends of the case continues um, because it must not be assumed that anything in that particular dispatch is reflective of the whole case, right? So um, court reporters are very specialist reporters. Uh, one of the requirements is that, like, for years you had to have, like, shorthand, T-line shorthand of 100 words a minute. Um, you couldn't because court, um, you can't do recordings in court. So uh, you had to have highly skilled reporters who could do shorthand. And they're like um, given special privilege in the court that they can have uh, access to the internet when others can't and stuff like that. But um, but it's it's very delicate, and this is well known. So if you become a journalist in the UK, you are taught this stuff, and people are on eggshells as soon as any court reporting is is going on. And in the Tommy Robinson case, I think you know whether whatever you think, it, the context is important. The context is that he. Even though he's a self-described journalist, he is from the school of sort of independent journalism. Yeah. He will not have had that training. And he may unwittingly have broken these rules, not knowing the severity of the implications. And the thing about contempt of court is it applies to everyone. It doesn't matter if you were aware of those rules or not. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it sounds, from what you're saying, it sounds like it's very difficult to not be in contempt of court if you don't know those rules. Exactly. And you can't just learn them from like reading one page. Like he, I think he claims that he read the page of the court. And, and it's like, well, it's not the job of the court to educate you on what contempt of court is. Um, there might have been some sort of, you know, brief example. Of what, I, I don't know. I, I don't know the details. So I don't want to misrepresent what happened. But um, but it, it takes quite, you know, quite a lot of training to really understand the scope and depth of, of, of how you end up in contempt of court. So I wouldn't be surprised if he was just a bit naive, didn't realize what he was doing. Um, and I think I think also his, so from what I've read, you know, he's making points like, oh, well, the BBC already reported this stuff. Yes. This stuff was in the public domain. But you can report on stuff. This is the thing. You can report on it, but you have to report on it in a very specific way, which is fair and neutral. You can't editorialize. And he was unfortunately adding a editorial element to his reporting. It was not neutral and fair. It was whether whether you think it is just or not is an irrelevance. There was an editorialized element to his live stream, and so that is the issue. The BBC, you know, you it was you know it's a clear court report sort of situation. And so the other thing is the guy was being being given a verdict at that point. Right. And that kind of 
matter because the contempt of court can be very, it's not specific to just one case. So in a case that I'm dealing with, there's a, there's, there's a certain person who's been arrested. I can't write about that person. Well, I could, I could take the risk, but it's been advised I don't because he had an accomplice. And so I, you know, even if he is given a verdict, it, there's still a risk of me being contempt of court because if the accomplice ends up being arrested and, and being tried for the same crime, then I can be in contempt of court because of my reporting on the other guy, if that makes sense. Right. So there is actually a shot of you even like you could, for example, uh, if the court deems that like you've, you've reported on something before uh, another trial has ended, you could also fall afoul of those rules. Right. And, and it's not just that. It's like before the other guy's even arrested. It's all very it's all very it's all very sketchy. But these are the and you may disagree with the rules, but those are the rules as they stand. And so. I think Tommy's case, what he's making is that he's been somehow targeted or, or uh, like uniquely, um, you know, made a scapegoat. Well, I think he, um, I think it's hard. To, it's hard to argue that he hasn't in some cases. The question is, is it in this case, is he guilty of the thing that he says he's not guilty of? Um, if you don't mind, I mean, he, he actually released something in his Telegram group that I thought we could go uh -huh. through and talk a little bit about. Like he talked yeah, about each charge. So charge one. Breaching reporting restrictions, Tommy says, I followed the reporting restriction guidelines published on the judiciary own website where it clearly states that the court has no power to restrict information already in public domain. So you're saying that that's not quite what, like that, that's understated by that. Presuming... So I think he's missing, I don't know, because I didn't read the original judicial thing, right. but that sounds to me like um, a misunderstanding of the rules. So, yes, there's stuff in the public domain, but the public domain, um, so when even in a court reporting situation, even stuff in the public domain, if it's how you present it in the context of what you're reporting and whether or not it skews the perception of what, what is going on. So the, it is very, you know, you can have public domain stuff. It's, it's about how public that public domain stuff really is like if there's like a a report at some council uh you know that i could access because it's public access that's not public domain because that hasn't been distributed to the public at large right so if the mainstream public are not aware of it and you adding and joining the dots between that case and that public information that is still contempt of court if it affects the core case right so the restriction yes the court has no uh, ability to restrict the reporting of public domain information, but it does have the capacity to restrict you linking it to the current case, if that makes sense. Right. Okay. So then he says, in the public domain, I can go and write about it, blah, 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 blah. But if I link it to the current case, then it's more complex. So that reflects what his next statement is. Tommy says, all I did was read information that was already in the public domain on the BBC, BBC news website. The government lawyer's response in court was, the document on the judiciary website is wrong. Well, and, and I think I think that wouldn't be a that it's not. I would. I mean, I don't. I don't. I feel like I'm like defending uh, the the mainstream here, but like um, you know, there is a justifiable kind of excuse in in that information being wrong because it's not the job of the 
judicial website to educate you on this stuff, right? So there will be some sort of, it might not have been necessarily wrong. It might just have not been detailed enough. And it might have not been, there might have been nuances that weren't. Uh, properly explained, and he may have misinterpreted it. I, I, I would, I, I, I imagine saying it's outright wrong is hyperbole. I imagine it was kind of mis, misrepresenting uh, the bigger picture. In, right, in right. it words. wasn't. It wasn't trying to necessarily educate, like uh, you know, what backyard reporters on the subject. They, they figured you'd add some education, maybe. I mean. I guess I don't think that you're supporting the uh, the establishment here. I, I do think what's interesting for me is the this really simple question: Was it Tommy Robinson that they were going after, or was this just a rule he actually violated that all of you reporters in London, uh, actually or England, generally have to deal with? Because so I, I think it's the latter. Because you know when you are a reporter, you just have to like. Any engagement you have with your in-house lawyer, they will be nervous when you come when there's a court case, right? Because there is so much, so many implications of how you report it. It's very specific. It's, or anything that is live in court is always going to have like three editors looking at it and making sure that you haven't, you know, messed up the rules. So they're there to protect um, you, basically, too. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's that sensitive, and and there are very specific wording uh, structures that we use, and and this is well known. But if you are not in the professional field, you won't know all that stuff. And even though the law applies to absolutely everybody, the problem with the internet is that um, it's kind of created a free for all, and people haven't been necessarily um, you know held to account. And that might be unfair, because I'm sure that contempt of court happens on a mass basis all the time and it's just the inability of actually chase down anonymous sort of Twitter handles and, and take them to court. Tommy's error was that he did it in full face of the of the court, right? Right. So whereas if you're gonna be in contempt of court, use a pseudonym, right? And don't be identifiable because it, it, the court will come out to you. And especially if you make it easy for them. And in the case of the Tommy thing, it was so brazen in, in front of the court, the court would look stupid if it didn't go after it because it would set a terrible precedent for all the other journalists. And at the end of the day, the UK law system is very much still dependent on precedent. So if they, it's almost a case of if, if you don't go after Tommy Robinson, you kind of undermine this huge sort of uh, case law about how these things are dealt with, which can upset um, all sorts of like future cases and, and just generally how the, how the media reports on things in general. Interesting. I mean, how, how do you, is there a way to do citizen journalism in the UK? Is there like a school you can attend? I don't know. I mean, anyone can go on a journalism course um, and a good journalism course will teach you these things. So um, there are lots of journalism courses, um, whether you're affiliated with a paper, like most papers will then give you extra training on this stuff. But if you do a, if you do a journalism course, they will t- they will they will teach you libel law and 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 court reporting. It's very specific. Okay, charge. Um, but the next charge, yeah, go charge on. two, causing causing the Muslim rapist anxiety. They actually said that because I asked the now convicted child rapist how he felt about his verdict. That he could, or that 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 could have caused him to feel anxious and interfered with the proceedings. They seem to have ignored the fact that twenty to thirty reporters asked me the very same questions 
as I walked into my trial on Thursday. So he was asking these uh, the people who are now convicted outside of the courtroom, how do you feel about your conviction today? And or, or, um, Sorry, how do you feel about your chances today, I think is what it was. Yeah, it was on the way in, wasn't it? So, um, yeah. so my, my understanding would be that, first of all, this case pertains to him, right? So the kind of like hypothetical of what happens to the other reporters today is something the court has to consider whether or not it's going to uphold the um, the kind of precedent it has set with Tommy Robinson, right? But in terms of him heckling or, or asking the the felon on the way into court, I mean that 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 class that is fair in terms of contempt of court because you're not supposed to um, in any way interfere or try and impose your views or or in, in it's called interference and um, you're just not supposed to and it's not just jurors it's the it's the accused and anything that might compromise or unsettle them yeah it, it is that is just simply the case that is the law you're not supposed to you're not supposed to interfere with it so even even um, if they've already got a verdict i mean they haven't read the verdict yet but it sounds like they had a verdict I think he was going in for the verdict, yes. wasn't he? Yeah. And he was live reporting as the verdict was happening. And in that case, one of the issues is that this was one verdict and it was a, a big series of linked cases. And as I said before, contempt of court applies to cross-infection between other cases as well. So this was like one one verdict, but there were other cases connected that were still about to be heard. So even though he'd had a verdict, the others hadn't. So it's, that could impact the other, you know, the other cases. So that still applies. And the the kind of interference, it is a thing. Now, wh why, the question I would have is why would the court not then take um, the same action on people interfering with his case. And the only thing I can think of is that in his case, he has made a public spectacle of his own case, right? So um, there is an argument. I would, I'm not a lawyer again, but I would imagine everything has to be measured and contextualized. So in this case, he has made a public case of his, of his unfair treatment. And that publicity is out there. There's nothing you can do about it. So, so that is he widely has in known. His own way, yeah, he in his own way has prejudiced. You know, you know, like what is it they do in America? Um, the Miranda rights. You have yeah, Miranda. Right yeah, stay, you have. Yeah, you have the right to stay silent or whatever. Well, he's definitely not stayed silent, right? So he has, in his own way, um, kind of perjured himself, not perjured. Was well, the word. Your, perjured. your point is that it's qualitatively different than what he did. Yeah. Yes. Because the world that, you know, he has actively chosen to publicize his case. Everybody knows about it. It's much harder as a result to perjure, uh, to prejudice, prejudice it because, <clears throat> and, then, you know, and you could argue that if it's about the sensitivity of like him being harassed on the way to, to to court and him being unsettled by it everything is relative so you know the question is um <clears throat> is he i mean i don't want again i'm not a lawyer but it's about the context the context really matters someone who has not previously had any media uh, um, or attention and has been approaching and preparing for a trial with any media spec around it will absolutely uh, phased if there's suddenly a court report 
reporter chasing him down the street, right? But if it's someone who has been in the limelight for a very long time and is aware of and has even engineered um, a kind of movement around his case, then it's much harder to argue that the sort of questions he's going to get are going to impact his state of mind. That's how I would imagine it is perceived. But I think that's probably his most um, logical defense. Can, can you explain why, why would his state of mind matter when going in for a verdict? Um, <clears throat> I don't know. <laughs> but again, it's about how... Um, how you conduct yourself in court. And if, if you know, in the case of linked cases, it's, it's presumably you get a verdict and, 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 and you, I don't know, you end up in a distressed sort of state, you know, saying something incriminating against your other people or like the state of mind might make you say something on the record, on the, on the court record that will impact the jurors or whatever about, even though they would be different jurors, but say something happens, which is public record, uh, you you end up saying, I don't know, everyone, you know, my colleague, blah, 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 he did it, he's the one that did it, not me, blah, blah, blah. And you might not have said that, that might have not been yours. I don't know, I'm just making things up, but there is some sort of concept of interference still, if there's ongoing cases. And in the Tommy case, there isn't really an ongoing case. It's a singular case. So there's chance of interference. I don't know. Like, again, I'm just thinking off the top of my head. <laughs> no, no, that, that's interesting. I mean, like, okay, so let's go to charge three. Charge three, which is the final charge. Taking a picture of the Muslim child rapists entering the court has today been deemed contempt of court. Every single mainstream media newspaper printed a picture of me entering court yesterday. This is a complete corrupt stitch-up. And I am being tried for who I am, not what I did. So, I mean, I guess on, on the one hand, what's interesting is the sort of idea that... Uh, well, I think that picture thing, A, is absolutely true. You cannot take pictures of people going into court. That's why, and just to make sure people go in with, like, you know, blankets on their heads and things like that. So um, that is absolutely true. Now, the reason in Tommy's case it doesn't apply is because he has himself, like made made it quite evident that when he he is self-publicized all this stuff so that becomes not relevant so do the do the court or do the attorneys of like the bbc and others are they just kind of like well like, we can do this now well i think in the case of tommy it's very specific like he has made himself a public spectacle right and that undermines he's now a public figure to to some extent he is he is it, he, every the, the the knowledge of the case is there. Everybody knows he's going to court. There is no there is no um, relative interference if you take a picture of him. Everybody knows what he looks like. His image is well documented everywhere, right? So everything is relative. Like before, like the guy, the gang guy, nobody would have known what he looks like. The public at large would have no idea who he looks like or what you know, because the idea is that. If he's found not guilty, yeah, and he was innocent, then um, he should be able to live a life of peace and not be able to be recognized around the corner because he was once filmed or photographed going to court. That's the logic behind that, right? So if Tommy is found innocent, it doesn't make a difference because 
like the, the, everyone knows this case anyway, right? So there's no, there's no downside. Does that make sense? Immense sense. Uh, I don't, you know, what's really weird is, is these rules all sit very poorly with me, but at the same time in America, general, you know, it's, it's, it's about what's, you know, it's about relativity. It's about context. It's about fairness. Oh no, I I get it. Like, I'm just saying in America, we, one of the big problems we have with courts here is that every court case can be made a spectacle of. I I, I fully see the purpose of these rules. Right. Which bothers me. So, so, so in what happens... It it tinges my spirit. (laughs) Well, so what happens in, like, tell me how, how, tell me a case where where it's been made into a spectacle. I mean, you know absolutely everything about the Harvey Weinstein case, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I I mean, like, he's, he's not even gone to court yet. Yeah, he's like yeah. in the middle of it, right? Um, I, I mean, that's a really good OJ OJ Simpson uh, was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah mean, so it, that couldn't. Yeah. In the U.S., lawyers use the media as a means of placating or, or pleading with the public because the court of public opinion actually matters. Uh, there's a woman down here in Florida who was accused of killing her daughter stuffing her in the trunk and, or, you know, killing her daughter with chloroform, stuffing her in the trunk and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And to most of America, it seemed like a pretty open and shut case. And she was declared not guilty. So now she lives about maybe 10 or 15 miles north of where I am. And she can't get any peace. Yeah. Not to say, I mean, she probably was guilty, which, by the way, <laughs> I can say. Uh, but... But she was declared not guilty by a, a jury of her peers, which is how our system works. And uh, she's, she's both well-recognized and well-hated. Um, her name was Casey Anthony. Everybody knows who she was. Everyone watched the trial. It was like the biggest media spectacle we've ever had. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that's precisely what the rules are supposed to try and prevent. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of... And I hadn't considered that because I think... You know, habeas corpus and the idea of being proven, you know, innocent until proven guilty, it's something that um, cannot exist in an open market for information because, as you can see with the current kind of Me Too, witch hunting kind of environment, is that an accuser seems to be uh, given more rights than the person accused because their reputation is tarnished no matter what. And even if he's found innocent, the kind of the claims still lurk around him, right? And so um, that is why in the UK, I guess, we have such rules that are very specific about what you can and cannot report. And especially if the, 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 the victim or the accused are children, in that case, it's even more more complex in terms of what you can and cannot name. But, um, and I can see the logic of it, because the idea is if you do get proven innocent, you should be able to get on with your life and not have to be... Um, in any shape or form connected to this trial, this mis, you know, and and the other issue I believe is that if in the in the UK I don't know about the US, but in the UK if um, and a lawyer can prove that that the there has been bias or prejudice because of infection of 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 that of that court sphere by um, unfair kind of coverage, they um, they can declare mistrial, in which case, you know. That's really dangerous because in the in the Tommy case, what well, you know, it's 
it goes against the logic of what he was trying to accomplish because what he if he genuinely perverted justice because of uh, prejudicing the case then those, all those people who are still to be tried would have had to be let go because it, a mistrial would have been de declared and that would not be the optimal outcome if if you know given his um general persuasion that they, they sure. were guilty, right? No, I'm, I'm very bothered by... I'm, I'm very bothered by uh, all of this, actually. <laughs> and I mean, in the sense that I, I think that I think that there's a good reason for those rules. I, I mean, I, I do yeah. think... I do think you're right that you cannot have uh, this sort of innocent until proven guilty, at least on the public opinion level, unless you mm -hmm. have restrictions like that. And yet it runs afoul of what I think of sort of free speech. Um, That's because fundamentally all these forces are quite paradoxical. Oh, well, of and course, so of course. The balance between... Um, that's why I've, you know we've had this conversation many times, but that's why I, I am a, I am, I would consider myself a, demo, a believer in democracy and individualist, individual rights and liberties. But I, I don't ever, I don't identify with libertarians because I think well, they're, they're naive. stupid. So that's fine. <laughs> yeah. So I think they push it too far. I think that there, there is a room, there is, in a civilized system, we need to make rules. Okay. Here's here's, here's what I think, Isabella. Here's where I'm I'm getting off the train. Okay. I think that freedom of speech is an absolute right. I, I do have tr I struggle with that because it's I've said this before. It is the worst right that we could have ever been given. Uh -huh. Right. Because it's evil and disgusting and people say terrible things. And that's just the way it is. So it's yeah. it's it's the most important right uh, to protect because it's the hardest right to give and to want to keep and to protect <laughs> because it's very easy to try to silence people. On the other hand, I do think that it's important that people uh, are able to get a fair trial. I think it's important for media to be uh, middle of the road and honest in their reporting. I think in some ways, the fact that that's not what happens here, that media is all about opinion journalism in the U.S., has it sort of gives a great insight into how medium the medium of media has degraded and the quality of journalism has disappeared because court reporting in reality ought to be boring. Yeah. And yeah, it genuinely is in the UK. Right. <laughs> genuinely is, right. And, and it should be. I mean, I think in fact, I would be of the opinion that most reporting ought to be boring. And I do wonder sort of what the solution is and, and not, not a, like, I don't view it as, a government, uh, uh, the type of solution where you need government to step in necessarily. I, I think that, I mean, although I do think that in some ways, like, I'm surprised at the the fact that libel laws don't apply in many cases, right? Like, if, if, uh, if the media goes and says that you're definitely guilty or that you look guilty or whatever the hell it is, you'd think that after you're declared innocent, you'd be able to either get that stuff scrubbed or to go after people who've made your life a living hell at the end of it. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is absolutely why I'm a little bit torn about some institutions because on one hand, you know, they are quite oppressive and, and, and dictatorial. But on the other hand, when you consider like the European Union, they were the ones that brought in the rule of the right to be forgotten. I don't know how, if, how much you know about that. I've been trying to get European citizenship so that I can, uh, so I can use GDPR <laughs> against PayPal. 
I mean, there's GDPR, <laughs> but there's also the, this other rule, right to be forgotten, which means that you can uh, request Google to scrub all sorts of references to you in their searches, because the idea is that, you know, if you don't want to be, you know, if you have legitimate reason to 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 not not, um, you know, I'm, I'm mumbling a bit, but there is a concept that you know, once you've been in jail, you've done your time, you've served, you know, you've done that 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 sort of, you've paid your dues to society, and you come out, and you're supposed to at least. Uh, be given another chance, right? And obviously, we know that former felons, it's very difficult for them to be trusted, and there's all sorts of issues. But by and large, in the internet age, it's even worse, right? Because you've got this entire, you know, internet history that comes with you. So when when the right to forget first came out, I actually wrote quite a critical piece about it. I thought it would be very um, obstructive in terms of journalism and and it would um, make it difficult for us to find facts and I felt quite strongly at the time that um, you can't just make history disappear weirdly I was obviously focused on this immutable concept but I think I've come on board with it and I think um, I do think that once you for whatever reason you know a certain amount of time after a certain amount of time we're, we're all different people and what you did like seven years ago you know, this is especially applicable with young people who do stupid things online nowadays, and then seven years later they regret it. Um, there should be a means for them to wipe that history out, or at right. least reset. And so I've come to think it's actually probably a good idea. Um, and it's like with financial records. I don't know if the same rules exist in the in um, in America, but there's a statute. There's a what's it called? Statute of limitation with respect to um, how you know crimes, crime, yeah. and but in 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 the UK also like if you have I think banks are only obliged to hold like records for seven years or something. So if you if you um, you know or even the authorities, I think I think if they've just changed the tax reasons as well. Like there used to be a limitation as to you know if you if you were cheating on taxes. If they hadn't come for you in like seven years, whatever, you were basically off. Um, you could get away with it, but I think they may have changed it with with the taxes. Interesting. That's interesting. I mean, a question for you. I mean, like with GDPR and the right to forget. Oh, looks like we've lost her. Give me a sec. There you are. You back? Yeah. Okay, so with GDPR, one of the things that you can do, I think, is request all the information that a, a website has on you. Is that the case? Uh, uh, I don't know. I mean, there's a Freedom of Information Act, but that's specific to public bodies. Um, I think. I think, yes, I think to some degree you have the right to insist that any information they do have is deleted, right? And, yeah. And so what I was wondering is, like, what? could, like, a Carl Benjamin, for example, require YouTube mm -hmm. to delete everything they have on him? Yes, you could do that, yes. And and then every they'd have to rediscover that he's a radical every, like, six months? Yes, yes. Oh, yeah, 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 he could. <laughs> I've been wondering why he doesn't do that. He's probably not thought of it, but 
Maybe he'll listen to this. Presumably he believes in his archive. But I, I, I don't know. I mean, it's... Well, it can't be. Once, I, think, try... I think once with GDPR, they're required to fully delete it. Or they get fined 4% yeah. of all of their revenues or $25 million, whichever is greater. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I so mean... Presumably yeah. Carl Benjamin <laughs> could cause Facebook, I don't know, $3 billion in damages. <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah. Why not? He, it's a strategy. Definitely, it's, it's worth seeing if it if it's if it's usable and and defendable. Why not? But um, I like your thinking. I like how you're testing this law. Thank you. That's what I was thinking about. Um, though I was like, I, I kind of no, want to. My general view of GDPR is that there are all sorts of unintended consequences that aren't oh, necessarily yeah. good. It was intended to kind of protect people's data, but I think. In reality, it's done nothing like that. And actually, all it's done is it's delisted you off like lots of mailing lists that you really wanted to be on, and then a bunch of spammy ones as well. But in terms of accessing sites and gathering data, everyone's still being moronic. And it's like, well, I want that free news story. I'm going to go on this website. I'm going to click yes. Do, do half is my data. Because we just, so we're just re. You know, this time it's even more sinister because before we could argue we didn't know that they were taking our data and right. we're like uh, giving it away consciously and the, we're having to click a button and go, yes, yes, you can take my data. Right, and because so everybody, every website requires it. Sorry? And since every single yeah. website requires it, you're just going to do it without thinking. It's a dealing with a vampire, right? You have to invite them in and then they have all control over you, yeah. right? This is what we're doing. <laughs> we're hmm. like, come in, come in, Facebook, Google, whatever. Harvest my data. I've, I've given you permission. I've invited you in. But I think it's only permission until you decide it's not, right? Like, then they have to delete it. Yes. yes. Yeah. So, sorry, so, on if you're listening, which you're not. Change their minds about stuff. Yeah. Get, get Carl Benjamin this idea. I think this would be a really funny, funny one to watch. I, I don't know how to contact Carl Benjamin. I mean, he's very hard to, he, he for, for someone so public, he has um, very limited contact information about him. Because I did, before he became a notorious sort of rape joke person, Yeah. like I did try to contact him because I was interested in the story about PayPal and and uh, Subscribestar. And I was just interested in the, in the connection with the payment companies. And this was before it all exploded in the UK and he became notorious uh, for, for that rape joke. Um, and uh, I tried to contact him, but I couldn't I couldn't find a way to do it. Could he so, use a right to be forgotten to have that all scrubbed away in Google? Sorry? Say that again? Like, could he use a right to be forgotten to have all of that, like, news coverage scrubbed away? Yeah, he could. He absolutely could. So this is what he I would could. do. This is how I would use it all. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's just, I think you have to submit a request for every single thing, though, and it can take time and resources to do that. But, um, you know, there's a whole bunch of Russian oligarchs that I'm sure do it all the time. They have professionals asking, you know, monitoring the internet and doing it. So, yeah, no, definitely. It's something to consider. Interesting. Um, yeah. You wanted to talk a little bit about the FCA ban on crypto uh Derivatives. Yeah, no, I just thought it was interesting because um, the FCA has been sort of differing about making any clear-cut rules, and now they've come out with this proposed proposed ban, um, and there's outreach to to industry is going on now. But I think it's 
you know, I don't know, I'd be very surprised if they don't go through with it. Um, and it's quite far reaching because it, it impacts the number one way people are exposed to crypto here, which is through CFDs, which you're not allowed to have in the US. Right. You know about CFDs? Mm -hmm. Contracts for difference. So they're a kind of type of derivative. And um, that is actually the number one way people in the UK have been getting exposure to crypto. And it's through platforms like eToro and IG Index, etc. And um, I didn't know that I didn't know that CFDs were not allowed in the U.S. Yeah, no, they're not. Wow. It's illegal. You, it's part of your. It's considered. I think it because it's considered a type of gambling. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I mean, Counterparty came out originally with CFDs, and I thought they removed it from the protocol. Well, not from the protocol, but from like the UI originally. Uh, for mm -hmm. technical reasons, but it might have been the legal reasons. I wouldn't imagine it was legal because you, you definitely, you can't trade CFDs in the U.S. Right. And it's considered a form of gambling. So um, I I know in the U.K. there are tax implications, for example, like one, I never can remember which one, but I think spread betting counts as counts. As, tax, as taxable wins and CFDs are not taxable or it's the other way around. And it's all to do with which one is considered gambling. Because in the UK, if you gambling um, wins are not taxable. Really? Mm-hmm. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. And also, um, you can have capital gains without any tax in certain... Uh, perishable good markets as well. Why are gambling so wins not taxable? Is that because of VAT? No, no. It's to do with um, the general perception about how value is transferred in a, in a, in a gambling. So it's a zero-sum activity. And so there is perceived to be no kind of value add. And um, as a result, it's, it's perceived as not, not taxable. That's so it's interesting. Not value -add. Situation. Right, Good. someone's just taking someone else's money. Yeah. You're moving money around yeah. the table. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's very interesting. So idea, I had no idea. You know, the idea of tax is, you know, I think the purest concept is that you tax value add, you tax growth and productivity. Like if you, if you were to tax a kind of static growth, like a, um, a steady state type situation, you would end up diminishing the pie for everybody right so so um tax is always on your gains on your income that has been gained through a productive endeavor adding value so if you're not adding value if you if you if you gain from a zero sum sort of situation i mean i might be talking a load of bollocks but for this this is probably <laughs> This is why I recall last time I looked at it. Well, so they, um, they've only proposed the ban then, right? They've proposed it. So they're going to do like some investigation and outreach to, you know, the market. But I, I, I strongly doubt that anyone will change their mind. Um, uh, the, the wording, that was, what was interesting about it is their basis is... Well, first of all, the crypto community needs to be thankful that it's not an outright ban. ban. Yeah. It's only on derivatives. Um, it's bad for crypto in so much as 
those derivatives were a huge source of uh, demand for the underlying via the you know at the end of the day derivative or not the, the, the all those derivative companies have had to hedge with real bitcoin underneath it so that has still been a source of demand for bitcoin um so if you ban that that is that is going to impact the market um but what was interesting was that their rationale as to why it causes consumer harm because at the end of the day the fca is only interested in banning something if it if it's demonstrable that it it's causing consumer harm um and they kind of came up with a figure about how much harm has been caused um but they also sort of said that it's because it's impossible to value a derivative a crypto derivative and they um to prove that that's the case they kind of um uh gave a test like they they tested two analysts on a on the same model the same valuation model of bitcoin because obviously a derivative has to price on some sort of um based on some sort of model of how the underlying performs and these two analysts came out with using the same model came out with a two different outcomes which were 400 percentage difference between them which is quite astonishing so that's the kind of like randomized nature of bitcoin what what that, assumptions do they put in there i don't know because they didn't uh, they didn't reveal the model but they said it was the same model that seems same- that seems insane to me that that would be the case unless they have some problematic assumptions that one or both of them were operating on i don't know but you should check it out because it was I, i did i put it in the post that we wrote about it but um it's quite i mean if the same this just doesn't happen in other markets like you have you have the same model two different analysts will come up with a number that's pretty similar sure there's a valuation kind of technique whereas you know the the volatility plus the sort of underlying lack of fundamentals makes it very hard to value a derivative what if they'd given it to 100 analysts I don't know, well, maybe someone should try and do that in their uh, outreach. It just seems to me that like if you the more you give it to, the more you'd actually be able to see. Like giving it to two seems like noise. But I think that's a fair thing because you only need two to prove that the model is inconsistent. Like so if you if you have a consistent model and it's easy for a consumer to understand what the underlying value is, then you would come up with a pretty similar number. Doesn't matter how broad the sample is whereas here it's about the kind of it's the fact that just you know to some degree the more analysts the more the greater the distribution potentially here you just had two and the distribution was already mental right so i don't know but i think that's a factor of of two things is a factor of bitcoin's volatility but also it's it's lack of fundamental inputs in terms of how you value it Right. I I'd be, I'd be curious in seeing that. I'll I'll take a look at the article. Take a take a look. I mean, certainly it's something that the people who have an interest in defending this market should try and recreate maybe. Interesting. Well, I got a question for you personally. Mhm. How has your opinion on Bitcoin itself changed over the years? Are you like a, a staunch Bitcoiner now or are you still super skeptical or what aspects of Bitcoin are you skeptical of? No, it's my nature to just be contrarian about everything. No, that that is you. Uh, 
and I like to scrutinize everything. That's just, you know, so people who, who don't know me, and I, I can appreciate that's how I come across on online, but, you know, people take, like, Bitcoiners take it very personally, and I'm like anti-Bitcoin, but they neglect that I'm just anti-everything. <laughs> I'm very skeptical of everything. Um, I'm just that sort of person. And my, my as, I, as I always say, you know, my job is to scrutinize something, and, and I, I feel that's like almost the social science equivalent of, the scientific process is like we need we owe it to ourselves to scrutinize anything to the same degree as we do in science and and if if it withstands scrutiny then maybe you know we're onto something if if not you keep going right sure. so um that was always my approach to bitcoin anyway i've learned very quickly not to make price predictions because i think <laughs> i think that's um definitely the quickest way to lose your credibility in this in that in the uh, in the market you're but, wrong um, you just got to be a permable yeah permable um but you see there are negative issues with becoming a permit <laughs> because it depends what your objective is well like, you give you your integrity to... up but like who cares you'll get a lot of followers <laughs> of course yes number up yeah um well how's how's my opinion changed so there are two things that have changed my opinion one is so originally, my critique was simply that it is a very impractical, cumbersome uh, alternative payment, and it will be very hard for it to compete with the core system because uh, the core efficiencies of a centralized system are always going to be superior to that to a decentralized one. Now, I see the virtues of a decentralized system, and I see, and as a, as someone who believes in the right to cash and anonymity and, and not having, you know, con complete control of everything. I do believe in competition and decentralization, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I also think you, it's measured and you need the countervailing central, centralized forces and other things. But I think when it comes to Bitcoin, what I'm learning is sometimes those costs are worth it. And so I, I still say Bitcoin's like a luxury product. It's a, it's a lifestyle choice. It's like driving a, a vintage car as opposed to uh, some sort of hybrid electric nightmare. Um, I have just a plain old know, electric. Yeah. Well, <laughs> no, I don't mean to be pejorative. No, no, you said hybrid uh, electric. That's good. Those are bad. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit cynical. Like, like I said, I criticize everything. I'm very cynical of, of, of the past. <laughs> but um, I think there is a, um, you know, there is a cost to this product for a reason. It's the cost that actually makes it secure. Yes. And um, if you take that cost away, the whole concept falls apart. And there is a niche market for that. And, and in the event, and what, what I, what, I guess what I'm saying is my viewpoint has changed, not because Bitcoin has somehow uh, proven itself to be better than I thought. It's that the state at large has disappointed me. Yeah. <laughs> so my, um, so in relative terms, I think because of what's been just happening in the world, uh, I can see how something like Bitcoin has a marketplace. There is a market for something like that. And it's never going to be the hyperscale. I, I don't think it's, it might, I might be proven wrong, but as it stands, I think 
intrinsically, it will be very hard for it to be like the all-encompassing singular system. And by the way, that's not ideal anyway, because no system should be entirely holistic. I think, you know, competition is good. Um, but I think if if it if it's there as an as a as an alternative, it, that's a good thing. And I worry about particularly the launch of CBDCs and, and, and state sort of central bank currencies. I think they're central bank blockchain currencies. I, I think they're possibly the most scary thing out there at the moment. Um, and that's kind of the Pandora's box of it, isn't it? You why kind of why do you think that they're box. scary? Because to me, they, they just sound like what we have already. Central no, bank no, wise. no. I think, I think A, because central banks, like most enterprise blockchain, are co-opting the language. Um, and I agree of, with that. This, and, and trying to present it as something, you know, progressive and, and, and forward. But actually in the hands of a central bank, these CBDC things end up crowding out the competition elements in the system. And you can love or, or hate banks, and banks do lots of stupid things. But at the end of the day, the whole system's kept in check by the competition layer. At the moment, we have this kind of weird dual structure of a central bank that is decentralized through its member network, bam, the banks that are part of its network. And so it's the sort of glue that keeps this decentralized. Anyone can become a bank if they, if they obtain the, the standards, right? Right. But if CBDC really come, becomes a thing, then banks will lose a huge uh, funding source. Those people will put their deposits straight into central bank, and that will um, kill off the competition in banking. It will make it much harder for banks to compete, and it will put pressure on the central bank to do something with those deposits because it will have to reinvest that capital. And that means spending and investment decisions are going to be made not by a big network of competing banks, but by one central entity. And I right. think that is very dangerous because that replicates the system in Russia. Um, you want to have competing banks because banks need, and the whole point here is that the lending market needs to be one where someone will take a risk because on you as a potential borrower because they see something in you that the other person doesn't or that you know that's how the competition works if you've only got a central institution making these decisions then you know it's extremely oppressive it's almost Facebook. right well i don't think that people realize the innovation that's happened in lending the last hundred or so years in what sense well i mean lending has changed a lot i mean like you look at the 30s the number of people that were able to you know get a mortgage in the way that we think of mortgages today was minimal is minuscule. Mm -hmm. I don't. I don't remember exactly what the terms were, but I think farmers had like three years to pay off their mortgages back in like, you know, nineteen thirty, uh, and you know that the, the sort of risk taking by banks has become a, an incredibly interesting part of the economy, such that everybody was able to own a home back in the you know fifties and sixties, and even today, you know, basically everybody has a shot at owning a home. Yeah. And, and I think that's just generally true about loan making, you know, in the entire economy. There are people whose entire wealth is in leveraged, essentially leveraged money. Yeah, and I think that's a product of the fractional reserve system in some ways. And and that's not a bad thing. The point is that whether you like it or like, okay, so fractional reserve gets a lot of 
criticism, but that's because it's risky and it's 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 risky because it has mobilized capital to a hell of a lot of a greater degree than yeah. a full reserve system, right? And so there's always going to be a downside to that. So like we started off in this conversation, every you know, risk reward, it's a thing. Um, fractional reserve lending is risky, but it all mobilizes capital and it gets it to people who would otherwise not be able to get it. To yeah. Get it. Well, I, I always say this. I was I was talking to libertarians about this too, and and libertarians will say they hate regulation. My question uh-huh. about the fractional reserve system is always the same. It, what what's more a state of nature? Is it fractionally reserving, allowing people to fractionally reserve, or restricting the amount of fractionalization that can happen in a bank? Exactly. And exactly. And if, if fractional reserving is the answer, which it is, then I'm amazed mm-hmm. that libertarians don't advocate more of it. Yeah, I, I find it inconsistent logic as well. I, I, to me, fractional reserving, and by the way, the, the crisis was not caused by the fractional reserving of the Fed. I mean, there was still extremely constrained policy in relative terms. The real kind of credit extension and, and money creation came outside of the Fed's remit. It came in the eurodollar markets. It came abroad. It came with people effectively creating Teva-type things yeah. before there was a concept, right? And that was something the the Fed was trying to control but realized it couldn't. And then you had things like the Money Control Act um, to try and kind of constrain a lot of that lending. So back in the day when the Fed was created, you didn't have to become a bank, uh, a Fed bank. You could act in your own network if you wanted to. You would just not have the privileges of being in the Fed. But you would have other privileges, uh, like you didn't have to, you know, abide by the Federal Reserve rules. But when they they passed the Money uh, Control Act in the 80s, the 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 advantage of not being in the Fed network went away because suddenly all the rules were applicable to every bank, irrespective of whether they were a Fed bank or not. And this is when everybody like so, sort of went, well, what's the point of not being a Fed bank? So everybody, be, the Fed network got even bigger. Um, but by and large, it was, um, you know, the, the fractional reserving part of it was the constraint on 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 the U.S. banks is what caused the credit extension beyond beyond the borders of the U.S. and that kind of impl- de facto made the the U.S. the bank that had to bail out that system and that was essentially the U.S. bailing out the rest right. of the world. Um, I don't I don't feel people really understand that very well, which is a shame because it's inconsistent with libertarian logic, which would yeah. be a free bank system. <laughs> I think what we got to do is we should do a show sometime just on the euro dollar uh, market. Yeah, you and me. I love my favorite stuff. I, I know that's your favorite topic, so we'll, we should do that. In the meantime, let's talk about vaudeville and uh, and then we'll wrap this shit up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so first of all, very interesting because the first person who pointed out that vaudeville is pronounced vaudeville or however you just did it was Pamela Anderson to us because we were not aware of this mis like the way we pronounce it is different. Vaudeville. How do you guys say it? Vaudeville, 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 yeah? Whereas you have vaudeville. Yeah, vaudeville. Yeah, we're vaudeville, three syllables. God, vaudeville is so, Um, that's that's not how you say it. (laughs) We're very very lucky because uh, Pammy, um, the authentic Pammy, uh, came to help be our influencer and our promo. She she did a little bit for us and... um, 
Yeah, so, so, so for those who don't yeah. know, real quick, by the way, VOD, like the FT is doing an event on oh, is yeah. it the 26th? Okay. 26th of July. Called Vaudeville, or as they say it, Vaud- Vaudeville, uh, which reminds me of, like, it's like a Russian way to say it, I feel like. Vaudeville. Um, <laughs> Vladimir. Uh, but yeah, they're doing a great, it's an event and there's going to be a bunch of performances and Pamela Anderson has been involved to date in yes. the making of this. She has. Which got me really but excited. But sadly, sadly, even though we were hoping she might make a cameo appearance on the night, she has had some rather sad news. So she's had to fly back to the US. She split up with her boyfriend and it's all very traumatic. So then there is no Pammy. But I'll be her boyfriend. Fan- I, I told you this. Just let her know. I was going to say we have a fantastic fill-in, which is someone called hmm, what's his name, Joshua. Oh yeah, John Seth will be there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'm going. I'm going. I was excited. I was excited because I thought I was going to like get to hang out with Me. Pamela Anderson, which is really her childhood dream, not mine. Of course, hanging out with me. Uh, no, I want to make it happen, but this is a terrible situation that came about. Right. And, um, We're all sad for her. She would have really enjoyed meeting her childhood hero. Uh, but <laughs> alas, I guess that won't happen. But but there's other things that will happen. It'll be a lot of fun. I'll be there. Isabella will be there. Uh, a bunch of other people will be there. Uh, can the we, like, who can you say? The most important person who's going to be there is Adam Curtis, who is a BBC documentary work a maker. And if you haven't seen his stuff, I really recommend it. He did a documentary called Hypernormalization most recently, but all his stuff is amazing. And it's all like somewhere on the internet. And uh, I really recommend you watch his stuff. He's very thought provoking and has been onto this whole tech dystopian thing for a very long time. Um, and who else will be there? We have a comedian called Josh Weller, not, not you. Um, we he's, have he's going to be Coppola. almost as funny as I am. Yes, exactly. And then we have Francis, the one and only Francis Coppola, who you will know from the internet. And yep, she makes. Uh, she she makes. She he's a movie maker. <laughs> Indeed. Space Odyssey um, two thousand and one. No, that was Stanley Kubrick. Whatever. Whatever. But uh, she will be performing in her other role, which is she's a singer and she's um, a soprano. And she will be doing some performances. And we will have the artist Simon Denny, who does who has had a whole exhibition based on blockchain and Bitcoin is very obsessed with the topic. And we have I'm just trying to think who else we may have. We, we have another mystery guest that I can't reveal yet. And we have. Um, and a possible, I don't know if I should say this now, because it's not confirmed, but I will well, hint. Okay. There may be the presence of someone very allegedly closely connected to Bitcoin. Is it John said in, in a founding kind of way. Ooh. <clears throat> How Finney's mm-hmm. going to be there? Can't possibly say. We may we, we we may be calling the spiritualist, but I'm not I'm not. <laughs> there might be a séance on stage. Yeah. I like that. Well, that sounds so good. Gonna, That's exciting. And you want to and you want to ha- hang out with us, please. There's still some tickets. All you need to do is Google Vaudeville Alphazol, um, and it should come up. All right. 
So you should go, if you, especially if you're in the area. There's no excuse for you not being there. Uh, it'll be a blast. I'm going to have fun. Isabel's going to have fun. Uh, I'm a teetotaler, so I don't drink. But uh, but I am going to get everyone else to drink. <laughs> That's Really? Is that fair? Uh, it's better for me. I get to watch. <laughs> you know, I was raised in a teetotaling household. My father, my, my whole family's Norwegian. For the most part. So you're like Donald Trump? Uh, a little bit. But you know what? I, I have in the last few years uh, drunk a little bit. But I didn't have my first drink until my first night of college. Hmm. I'm not a big drinker either. Yeah. I, I dabble. When I drink, I'm big. But that's just my size. Uh, but yeah, like it's, it's uh, I've never been a big drinker. So what's your vice? Oh, what's my vice? Uh, murder. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> uh, you know, I, 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 I don't know. Uh, eating, I guess. I love food. Yeah. Love food. Me yeah. too. It's a problem. Oh, but and and and, uh, and 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 whoring. Very se- <laughs> very sexual. Good old fashioned vice. <laughs> but that, other than those vices. All right, everybody, that's everything for today. This is Johnson <laughs> chunking up the deuce of the South. The Mass is going to go in peace. St. Catherine, pray for us. Thank you. <laughs> All right, that was fun. I hope I didn't go completely crazy.